the subject is the hovercraft and the hovercraft is a very interesting beast uh, some people regard it very much as a sort of uh, just about an airborne vehicle which uh, really has more affinity with with ships and things others say well really it's a flying vehicle that just goes along near the ground or the water um, it's a very interesting British development and I can remember in the earlier days uh, there was a lot of optimism about the future for hovercraft um, and there were appraisals for military use as well as civil and uh, uh, all sorts of things were being said about it and we all wondered what would happen um, in fact its use I think it's fair to say has been fairly limited but nonetheless it is a valuable vehicle in its own particular roles and I think we're going to hear uh, an excellent exposition tonight about the history of, of the SRN series which were major, a major line of hovercraft um, and uh, there will be the usual opportunity for discussion uh, of, uh, of the, the lecturer's um, presentation. Now our lecturer, Mr. Ray Wheeler, served an apprenticeship with Saunders Row, and he won then a Spitfire Mitchell Memorial Scholarship, which enabled him to go to University College, as it was then, now Southampton University, uh, and he graduated with honours in aeronautical engineering. And he then did three years postgraduate work at Imperial on structural research and studying subjects from engines to economics. And as a senior stressman at Saunders Row, he worked on a variety of things, fighter aircraft, flying boats, rocket launchers, helicopters, hovercraft, and such diverse products as large domed roofs, bridges and submarines. There we are, there's a classic British engineering film uh, firm that did all sorts of things. Uh, he was appointed chief stressman of the then Saunders Row Division of Westland Aircraft Limited and three years later he became both chief structural designer and the project engineer responsible for the SRN4 that's the very big cross-channel hovercraft. In 1966, he was appointed chief designer of the company, then called British Hovercraft Corporation, responsible for work on hovercraft, rocket launchers and helicopters. He held this post for nearly 20 years, with the additional development, the additional appointment of technical director from 1972. In 1985, he became business development director of the East Cowes Company, then called Westland Aerospace Limited. And for two years before his retirement in 91, he was Systems Support Director and he supervised the last £8 million investment in company buildings and high technology equipment. In 1995, he was honoured to be appointed a Royal Designer for Industry, a quite rare honour, RDI, and this was awarded by the Royal Society of Arts, and this is an honour held 
in this country by less than 100 people. It was a very serious distinction. So we have an excellent speaker this evening, full of knowledge and experience, and I'm sure opinions and views to debate with you all on hovercraft. Ray, please deliver your lecture. I was knowledgeable in 1970, 1991. <laughs> I don't know about still. We'll see. So I'll get up here. Um, this is a chap who became a friend of mine. I expect most of you recognize him. It's Christopher Cockrell. I didn't meet him until uh, the, the N4 was being designed. I met him at uh, the Oval in Somerset when he'd formed a company called Hover Transport Limited with others with the idea of having a cross-solent version of it. I'll mention this again later. But I want, just want to tell you the remark he made to me. I just sat down with him, having not met him before. I'm talking about 1966. And he said to me, this version of SRN4 you're offering us is being designed by an aerodynamicist and a structural engineer and it's no good. You mustn't have the, the cars coming on the bow and off the stern. They must come in sideways. Well, that makes it exceedingly difficult to distribute them in the, in the craft. Anyway, that was his, the very first remarks he ever made to me. Uh, he got his patent. This is the famous coffee tin and kitty cat tin inside it, which you can just about see, where he... Uh, says he calculated that you could get four times the thrust with a, a peripheral jet instead of just throwing the air out of the center. That's what he patented, and that's what we used right throughout our designs. We, were, we acquired a uh, water jet from Switzerland, and that was part of the testing we did, and in a contract we were given in 1958 from NRDC to see what, was, what there was to be done with this patent. This passenger craft was the, one of the first designs produced in a paper in answer to this contract. And what fills me with horror is this view. Looks highly unstable to me, but anyway. It did the trick. And with that proposal came this idea of building a, what was called a manned model. That's even more horrible in that elevation. <laughs> I'm sure that would have tipped over if... Uh, if we'd ever built that. But that was the basis on which NRDC gave Saunders Row a contract to build a mound model. And what uh, part of the sort of futuristic designs that were produced to encourage NRDC was this model of a 400-ton cross-channel hovercraft with these intakes which would have filled with salt water and propellers up there, which wouldn't have given you enough thrust anyway. However, 
it uh, was all ab absorbed by the ministry. And we ended up with this craft, which we designed and built in eight months. The, uh, it has a buoyancy tank and twin jets, which I'll show later on. Uh, there's a Leonides engine in here with a, what's called an actual fan, and I call it a propeller, which pushed the air out uh, to form the cushion and through ducts, these ducts, to give thrust in either direction with a, a bucket in the middle here and a tailplane to give directional control. And there it is hovering for the first time in 1959. There it is crossing the channel. That is Sir Christopher Cockrell. The crew was um, Peter Lamb and Johnny Chaplin who went to Bell and became their chief designer. And uh, Christopher Cockrell filled in for a gentleman who was in the audience because they decided to go early in the morning and nobody told him that they were doing so. And they needed a third crew, so Christopher was told to go in, go on the craft. Halfway across, uh, they found they needed more bow ballast and Christopher was ordered to sit there in the, in the stern. <laughs> Um, Peter Lamb recalls that they got 70% of the way across and started to run out of fuel and they, they'd taken some extra fuel which they needed to, to load and um, it needed three people to do it and Christopher was given the job of pumping and he was pumping like this at this sort of speed whereupon Peter Lamb said to him pump you silly old bugger and apparently Pumpy did. So that was crossing the channel. And I got into trouble over this. I, one of the things that I haven't mentioned is that there were no design requirements for hovercraft. And I was the, the idiot who was told to formulate some. And I took the ARB requirements for aircraft and, and helicopters, the uh, Lloyd's Register of Shipping requirements for ships, and amalgamated them all into requirements for the craft. The very first requirements ever written for hovercraft. And when the various people involved decided suddenly they wanted to cross the channel at the same time, in 50th anniversary, is that right? Of the Vario crossing, they suddenly realized they couldn't lift the craft. And I was told on a Saturday morning to go and create a, a, a beam to go here with cables to these four corners to lift the craft onto a lighter. And a draftsman and myself went down to the, uh, the store of old bits of RSJ and, and so forth. We, I concocted a drawing, and I mean this, on a beer mat. It was made and the, uh, tested on the big John Samuel White's crane down at Cows. And it was lifted on the Sunday and <laughs> off it went. I forgot all about it after that until I was then a senior stressman. The chief said to me a fortnight later, 
where's the calculations, Ray? I said, what calculations? And he said, oh, well, on that lifting gear. I said, I didn't do any. And uh, he said, well, you better do some now and get it done. Because, uh, you know, safety requirements and, and all the rest of it. Well, I never did. And uh, <laughs> the craft was lifted quite a few times with it. However, that's the way we, were, we worked at that sort of time. Now, this shows the sort of problem that we had with the control of hovercraft. In order to make a turn, you have to yaw the craft and use the thrust inward in the turn to make a turn. That caused lots of pilots quite serious problems. And later on, we were to provide inward force into the turn so that you could make a decent turn. You can't roll the craft significantly. You can a little bit, um, but not sufficient to, to really make a good turn. Now, this is the sort of thing we were doing. There is a very small skirt that you might just be able to see under here. But that's the sort of thing we, we would do with uh, hovercraft. Just pile people on it and give them a ride. This bow was added. You, you may have noticed there wasn't one on that previous view. Just about here is what is called the royal dent. Because the craft at sea could only do about 25 knots uh, on, a, on a calm day. But the Duke of Edinburgh came down and wanted to drive it, and he drove down quite a significant downwind, managed to get 35 knots, and produced a, a dent in this bend <laughs> by ploughing it into a wave. And that bent, dent is still there in the Roughton Transport Museum. It was kept and known by everybody as the Royal Dent. And there it is again. Now, this, this we pushed the speed up to about 45 knots with an engine in here, uh, just a, a simple thrust engine from a Marbore jet. This is an air filtration system because the air was pulled in here and came into the... There's the engine. And that pushed the speed up to about 45 knots. Uh, there's a combination of things on here. Uh, there's Mark IV and Mark V versions. This is another Viper engine with a increased thrust, um, pushed the speed up to, if I remember rightly, a, a, about somewhere around 55, 60 knots. This pointed bow has been added to both the bow and the stern, and to our utter horror in the design team, Dick Stanton-Jones suddenly decided to put a four-foot skirt on it. We couldn't believe our eyes when we saw a sketch of this. It looked horribly unstable, but it wasn't. Uh, it was still a jet, this time a single jet, and we had stability curtains inside, which I'll show you later. And that was to simulate what we had got into our heads, was the latest thing to design a hovercraft was an ogival shape in plan form, which we put on this craft. We had terrible problems with the skirts. Dreadful problems. They don't, if they lasted a sortie, you were lucky. Um, and I was 
is instructed to find a way of making them last because I was supposed to be the expert in materials technology in the stress office. And I spent a great deal of my life on skirt design. So there's the SRN2, which I think is the only good-looking hovercraft that we ever made. All the rest look like they, <laughs> they're just doing a job, which in fact they do, of course. Now that, oops, that craft had four uh, Nimbus, Blackburn Nimbus engines of about 500 horsepower, coupled, each driving uh, an integrated propeller and fan underneath this intake. Uh, this craft was put into service from South Sea to Apley Beach, and that is at Ride, and that's it, on the beach. But unfortunately, that Mabore engine was hopeless. Partly sand ingestion into the engine and salt ingestion into the engine. But nevertheless, it managed to do a service. It uh, did it for a few months in 62 or 3. And uh, again, the later, a year later, helped by an N5, which I'll show in a minute. But that's, that's the, all there was was just fences on the beach. And somewhere, a little caravan, can't see it, uh, to sell tickets. There it is now with a big skirt, big bulging four-foot skirt. It was designed without one on the theory that uh, if you've got a two-foot uh, gap, you could go out in four-foot significant seas, which you could some of the time, <laughs> as long as it wasn't breaking or steep-sided. But, uh, but worse than that, uh, I'll describe when I come to the next one. Now, this is a picture that I'm sad about. This is 1965, just before the SRN2, which is in the background, was broken up, because it wasn't much good with these Marbore engines. And that was a fine body of men. I was very lucky right throughout my career with the staff who worked for me, the staff I worked for, and the staff I worked with at my own level. Here's me. Now, this gentleman was my deputy, Albert Weeks, and what I remember him most for, he was a really down-to-earth engineer, and we were designing the N4, and he said to me, Ray, why is it that we design this craft to carry a, an old lady who's semi-crippled, her bustle's on fire, and she's wearing stiletto heels. Um, this is Derek Hardy, and this is Dick Stanton-Jones. He was chief designer of this craft, and Derek was the chief project engineer, and they were the ones who started the SRN4 design. Dick, of course, is dead, as are almost everybody else in that lot. They've all departed this world which I'm very sad about, because they were a good crowd. They really were. The whole company was mainly run by apprentices, ex-apprentices. Well, because we'd made that 
four-foot skirt work on the um, on the N1, we decided to jump the N4 and go for this little N5. And this has got the same four-foot skirt on it, jetted, horrible thing to maintain, as I'll tell you more about later. There's the nine-foot propeller, no engine in here. Again, driving both the propeller and the uh, seven-foot fan, centrifugal fan, beneath there. Uh, in the early trials, they, it was found to be directionally too stable. It originally had a fin going up there, which was cut off, and this little chap here was added. Uh, later on, we realized we didn't need it, and it was taken away. At this time, uh, at the BHC, British Hovercraft Limited was formed of 70%, 70, 70%, 70 plus 25, yeah, uh, no, 65%, 65% Westland owned, 25% Vickers owned, and 10% government owned. I think that adds to 100. Am I right? Um, and this was the Vickers, no it's not, I'm jumping, I'm sorry, I, I I was looking at this picture wrongly. I'll come to that in a minute. Um, this is just to show you that the SRN5, this happens to be an N6. If you count the windows, one, two, three, four is a, a, uh, an N5. One, two, three, four, again, a, a ten-foot stretch is the N6. And these were made to be broken down so that they could be carried on an aircraft or like this on a lorry. So the whole of the side body has been removed. The, the, we were experts in stretching. We, were, <laughs> we stretched everything. And here is the SRN3, which went to, to this inter-service hovercraft trials unit. Um, this was a stretched N2 with gnome engines instead of the, um, the Blackburn Nimbus engines, which were on the N2. Um, again, integrated lift fan down there of 12-foot diameter, centrifugal fan, and 9-foot props, with this 10-foot stretch in the middle. And so Christopher liked this side-loading. One of the things that was argued about a lot at that time was how do you design a terminal for these craft? And one noted civil engineer decided an arc like that was the way to do it. That's a, an N5 on the arc. But of course, the trouble was then that the hovercraft would slide either way on the arc. So that didn't last very long and very soon a straight, ordinary slip was used. Uh, there's a, an N6. Uh, I think that this is the Canadian one. The, re the rescue is uh, Canadian Coast Guard who operate and still operate this craft at Vancouver Airport because of the shallows off the airport which uh, 
if an aircraft crashed there, no, no boat or road transport could get to it. And that's why they had these craft. This has now got a fingered skirt on it uh, and a bag above it. And then we went back and designed an N4. I was put in charge of structural design of it as chief structural designer and a year later I was made chief designer and put in charge of it totally and received from Dick Stanton Jones the order that whatever I did the weight of this empty craft was not to exceed a hundred tons whatever I happened. Well we did do that, we did manage it. The uh, method of construction we used was was quite unique. It was based on the fact that eight before sheets could be delivered from the, the uh, aluminium manufacturers. And we made these into standard two and a half inch thick sandwich panels. Uh, and the problem with that was the stiletto heels I mentioned with Albert Weeks earlier. Trying to get that structure to stand women's Stiletto heels was one hell of a problem. We solved it with, with putting uh, quarter-inch plywood on top of the panels with anti-slip uh, nutty crunch, we called it, which was <laughs> aluminium oxide uh, lumps on it for anti-slip. And that worked a treat, and it was quite light. And here we are with the skirt on it and the hoveloid graft. They had four of these and two went to sea speed. This is it under construction. Here you see the 8 by 4 panels. We had done a lot of work on uh, corrosion research because the early craft, although they were uh, proofed by aircraft standards of corrosion protection, it wasn't adequate. We found that redux bonding did give a very good interfaying corrosion protection. And so we used a lot of uh, redux bonding. All these panels were stiffened by redux bonding. The, uh, these eight before honeycomb sandwiches were all reduxed together. We uh, used to put little specimens of all the construction we were proposing, hang it over the seawall so that it would get uh, the tide in and out. Uh, we positioned it at about half tide. And uh, it, we did revolve. We, we also did it the, the proper way in a chamber. But uh, we found this hanging it over at half tide was much better. The, uh, and it was quicker too, believe it or not. And uh, the corrosion protection on these crafts was superb. We covered it, all the, all the uh, steel bolts and interfaying structure, interfaying, use of interfaying material. It all had to be assembled with, I think it was a polysulfide compound. This horrible dark brown stuff. Anyway, uh, that worked a treat on these N4s. They, we didn't have much trouble with corrosion.
That's how big the fans were. And uh, you can see there, near enough 12 foot diameter with 12 blades. They were designed and built at the company, and they were, that was a hell of a problem. Uh, the centrifugal forces were enormous, and uh, it was a hell of a, a weight problem to design them. And I learned that lesson when it came to the last hovercraft I designed, which you'll see later. The other horrible problem was ingestion of salt and sand into the engine bays, and in the end we had these big filtration panels, and that was covered by, with a, a shroud that was only open aft. It was powered by the Proteus engine, an old wartime engine, really, uh, very successful in the Bristol Britannia aircraft, <coughs> and that's the bow area of the N4 when we first flew it. But, uh, I went down to the factory one late one night to see how everybody was going on and my wife went with me about 11.30 in the evening and they were just testing the hydraulics on this, this ramp to um, raise and lower it and the foreman took my wife's hand and made sure she was the very first person who descended that ramp, which at 11.30 at night was quite amusing. We all had a good laugh. This was, we, um, in order to, to, for this ramp to be a reasonable size, uh, this, it was a rather a low level, this hinge for the ramp. And we took the skirt underneath it because we couldn't think of a better way of doing it. But uh, our chief test pilot took it out and I was standing right behind him. And he went straight into breaking seas on the shingle bank off, off Limington and smashed the bow in. And we very soon found a way of taking the hinge up there and across there to... Um, protect the bow. It also was a... Uh, we put the craft into service in 1968, trial service, and we found that downwind and down sea, there was a tendency for the craft to pitch into the waves. In other words, we'd got the centre of pressure of the skirt in the wrong place. It should have been further forward, in spite of all the testing that we did. And so we also, when the craft came back after that trial service, we moved the uh, skirt cushion line forward to um, get the centre of pressure in the right place and get rid of this limitation on how you loaded the craft. And there it is, here's the bow skirt now with this little folded device we put in here to get it so that the, when the ramp went down you didn't rip the skirt right down there. Four Proteus engines uh, firing one, two, three, four units 
19-foot diameter propellers, 12-foot diameter fans. And we had this rounded structure here. And the Mark II craft, we built a flat deck all along here, pulled the side out, um, removed the cabin we had down on the lower uh, car deck, and enabled us to put a lot more passengers and cars on the craft. And Hubbard Lloyd had all their four craft modified like that, and they called it the widened Mark II. That is the craft we um, we built for the inter-service hovercraft unit called the BH-7. And that had one of the SRN-4 units. Um, I called them a quarter of an N-4. All the method of construction was the same. Propeller was the same. Fan was the same. Uh, and it didn't have any access into this deck. Um, there was an, o an open deck right through the center of the craft underneath this cabin and two side decks. We had to have a very high hinge line and at that time we were, we'd gone and found through testing that uh, fingers 50% of the depth of the cushion was the optimum for performance. But we couldn't do that with this craft because of the, we had to put a high hinge line and it worked out at about 70% of the depth. The reason that we had to do it is if this pylon, which rotated 30 degrees, if you had a sudden runaway of it in certain conditions, it would have rolled the craft over. So we had to have this high hinge line to prevent that happening. That craft was very successful with the Royal Navy. This is the craft version. You can see now that the side cabins, which came out to there, have been removed on both sides. Uh, we provided the Iranian Navy with two of these craft, with this uh, clamshell door, we called it, because it was two bits. Um, we called that the logistic support version, and the Iranians had two of it. They were delighted with the craft and ordered four more, which they wished to convert to fast attack craft with, those are standard missiles, very similar to Exocet. And we did that simulation just to see if it affected the aerodynamics and controllability of the craft. We were all ready to do that job for the Iranian Navy when the Shah was deposed. Now, the sad thing about that, for me personally, was that there was a chap called Prince Shafik who was in charge of all these things. They also had eight SRN6s in the Iranian Navy. Um, the, uh, when the Shah was deposed, Prince Shafik went to Paris and there he was found and shot. And it does seem odd to me that people can do that. It's like this bombing. I don't understand it, how people can do it to people that are going to do, th do things, good things. And he, he would have done good things for Iran. However, that's a different story altogether. Now, 
at the time this CC7 was built, it, this was built by a little company called Cushioncraft, which was a, an offshoot of Britain Norman that, that made the Islander aircraft. They formed this little company, Cushioncraft, and at that time we were responsible for the, the north of the North Sea in, in NATO. And they did these exercises. I forget what it was called. Mike, do you remember? Storm Express or something? Pardon? I can't remember. No, something like Storm Express or something like that. Where they did a lot of uh, simulated landings on the uh, coast of Norway. And they ordered two of these craft. It had a, a uh, United Aircraft of Canada uh, ST6 engine, about 500 horsepower driving two fans either side of the craft, uh, which provided both lift and propulsion. Providing lift, uh, propulsion that way is very inefficient. So it only got to about 35 knots, this craft. Um, but it could carry either nine passengers or a, a ton of payload. And they were operated in, uh, in this Norwegian exercise. And... Um, they had a bit of a problem with the gearbox, but with these craft, uh, for an aircraft engineer, uh, the way they're used is abused. Uh, the fact that you could put £2,000 on it was totally ignored, and anything they could put on there, they put on there, and, and were surprised when the performance went down, <laughs> which is a pretty normal thing, I guess. They don't realize that the structure has to be designed to take these loads and also that the performance will be reduced. So these two craft were, were sent to Norway. We built a third because we bought the... Sorry, I didn't say. We bought the company. BHC bought the company. And we built a third one which went off to Sweden as a taxi on the islands of Stockholm. What, what happened to it after that, I don't know. Um, these were scrapped after the exercise. Now, the N6 was a stretched N4 by 10 feet. Um, N6s, incidentally, we built 55 N6s and 14, I think it was, N5s. Operated all over the world by IHTU, the Army, and lots of other people. And this one was operated by British Rail Hovercraft Limited between Southampton and Cowes. I travelled on it many, many times. And you remember I said four windows on the, on the N5, another four on the N6, another four on this, which we called the Mark 1S. Now, why did we not use Mark numbers for that one? Because we were threatened then by the CIA that if we gave it a new number, or even a mark number, it would have to go through a hell of a lot of procedure with the CAA, so we called it the 1S. And somehow or other, we seem to get away with it. Anyway, uh, that was another 10-foot stretch. Still the same engine. And lo and behold, it was faster than the, than the N6. To our surprise, and to Peter Land's surprise, the chief test pilot, who came to me and said, 
No, you mustn't do this. You mustn't stretch it again. It'll be useless. Absolutely useless. You mustn't do it. I said, sorry, we've tested it. We're sure we know what we're doing. It'll be all right. And it was. It exceeded our expectations in performance and everything else. And, and the customer was absolutely delighted. And Peter Lamb had the grace to come to me and apologize, which was a very nice thing for him to do. And so that carried 58 passengers. And only two of those were made. But we did use our own SIN-6 and modify that to the same stretch. We put a tapered big new skirt on it and we put twin, twin propellers for controllability and to reduce noise. Hover travel were threatened by Portsmouth and South Sea and Gosport that if they didn't do something about the noise created by the N6 series that their contract uh, or their license rather would be cancelled. So we reduced, we did a heck of a lot of research on the noise produced by propellers and we found that if you reduce the tip speed to about 450, 470 feet per second, which was about a third reduction in the previous speed, that you'd get as quiet a propeller as you could get. Uh, We did a lot of measurements and I made a presentation to the councils and they agreed to give Hover Travel a license, provided that their new craft, whatever it might be, had the same level of noise. And we did do that. We sold, I think it was six, of, the, of this version to the Iraqis. And uh, they wanted them to monitor what was happening in the marshes around the Shatul Arab area of, of southern Iraq. Uh, we hadn't heard a thing about about them since. This uh, just digressing, to, just to change the subject for, before you get bored, is this was what was called the 2KSES, the 2,000 ton investigation we did with the um, U.S. Navy. We were part of a team formed by Bell Aerospace, who had taken a license out to build hovercraft in America, as had Japan, the Mitsubishi company. Uh, the Mitsubishi company had already taken one out with Vickers, so we had that one as well. And uh, I was the mug who was responsible for the administration of those contracts. And I persuaded Bell that we could associate with them on this design uh, of a 2,000-ton ship. Uh, we didn't win it. We put a uh, what to us was a fairly conventional skirt on it. And the, the U.S. Navy didn't like that. Uh, the, the Roar Company, Roar Marine, on the, on the west coast of America, in sort of Los Angeles area, they put in a proposal which had hard skirts uh, with flexible bits between the hard bits. And uh, the U.S. Navy swallowed that one and gave Roar a contract they couldn't make it work, and the whole thing was cancelled. But we did actually, we were part of the contract team on that craft. Now, a slight diversion here uh, on skirts. We had two, two accidents with a, 
and then five, quite quickly, after, one after the other. One in San Francisco, uh, and that was the one that caused a lot of hoo-ha. One in demonstrations to scan Hover, which was a Norwegian company, where the craft was rolled over. Nobody was hurt, fortunately. And this was with what we call the jetted skirts, where the, 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 whole, the whole of the thing just folded in with a jet, um, which was almost impossible to maintain. But we did manage it for a while. Uh, that's what, where we developed the first 30% of the depth to the bottom of the, the buoyancy chamber uh, skirts on it, and these were the attachments of, of the uh, fingers to the bag. Now, this is the progress that had been made. So back here, I don't know if you can read that, but that's 1960, we put one extension of about a foot on the, for some reason, on the inner side of that outer jet. Why we did that, I don't know. We then put two, uh, uh, made a proper jet of it. Maintaining that was terrible, dreadful. And a little bit in, in, inside here. Then we, we went to that with a, a four foot jump, which frightened us to death, as I've said. I think that's 62. Further attempts to, to maintain the jet. Then we've used chains, we're now 64, to hold it together. Again, hopeless, really. So then we, we uh, Dennis Bliss invented this finger, which was curved like that, open into the, the cushion. And the air fed around, so again, you'd have a peripheral jet. Um, that uh, was a 30% one. We very soon went to a 50% one-to-one. And that, that would have been the BH-7. Uh, this was the, the bulgy one we put on the twin prop, which was a, a tapered skirt. And... That was the first tapered skirt on an N4. And then here now was the stretched N4 with an equal finger come back. And I'll, I'll deal with that a bit more in a minute. But all that took place in six years. And it was a lot of very hard work. Now on the stretched N4, what we tried to do was to get the skirt to respond instead of being dragged aft like this, that it would go upwards, upwards like it is shown here. And that would stop the craft from pitching downwards and make things much more comfortable. The, uh, we'd had previously quite a high pressure in that relative to cushion something like 60% above cushion. And down here we are talking more about uh, 10 to 15% higher than the cushion pressure. Now that skirt on the N4 was that big, huge, enormously heavy. And it was that red one was the last one we did for N4. 
the stretched version. Now, underneath the craft, uh, we had to make it stable, both in pitch and in roll. And on the sixes, we had this bag going right through the stern with holes letting the air out and little flaps so that the, uh, the, the, the air coming through could still come through when the water was rushing along. And then these, what we call stability bags, which were to save the craft from pitching in. And then on the stern, we, uh, we had these cones. Originally, we'd had jets pointing forward. And hover travel were having the most appalling trouble to get these to work. And as I've told you, I was the one responsible for developing the skirts as a as chief stressman and deputy chief stressman, long before I was made chief designer. And the aerodynamicists wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do, which was just to shut the bag off and bolt it all up instead of trying to make this forward-looking um, jet work. And it had a flap on it so, so that if the water got up that height, it couldn't go back up into the skirt and, and rip it off. And I thought this was just ridiculous. So, uh, and Dick Stanton Jones and the chief aerodynamicist wouldn't let me sew it up. So, after about a couple of months of this, I said to our chap who was out there looking after it, I said, sew the bloody thing up and don't tell anybody. And to our great pleasure, it increased the performance of the craft. And guess who got the patent for that? Not me, not me. Anyway, that's all for the birds. Uh, N4, because the skirt has a proportion of the width and length of the craft was much shallower, we didn't need to, to um, divide the front cushion there. So we just had one, one bit at the back to give it a measure of lateral stability, but we did have to divide it uh, fore and aft. In any case, we had a slightly higher cushion pressure. The cushion pressure on this craft was about 55 pounds per square foot. Um, and it was slightly higher there than, than in here to get the centre of pressure right relative to the centre of gravity. And so that's the sort of thing we had on the N4. Now, still talking about skirts, we uh, decided to go to computerise the manufacture of skirts. Whole shape, everything. And we established this means of cutting the skirt automatically to a shape put in by a, a computer um, with a program designed by the design department. And we cut it with this cutter here, which was a very high-pressure water jet. We thought about doing it with, um, with lasers, and we did do it. But we were concerned about if you cut the edge of the holes that supplied air to the cushion and to the periphery, uh, if you had cut the edge of it hot, it could have affected the fatigue life of the skirt. So we didn't do that. We did it with this very high-pressure jet. 
and that the actual cutting profile was all dictated by the computer-controlled machine. We did a paper on this to the uh, mechanical engineers and got a, pri a, a very prestigious prize for doing so. Then we stretched the N4, and here I was a bit too clever for my own bloody good. Sorry, excuse my language. Um, we stretched it by 55 feet. The, uh, my aerodynamic and hydrodynamic experts, combined with the uh, weights engineers, said an optimum stretch would be 47 feet. And in my great wisdom, I said, right, if that's what it is, we're going to go one more. We'll go to 55 feet, which we did. And I was up in the, um, the director's office, where I, my office was, but not in my office, looking while they pulled this craft out of the hangar. And you've got to remember that these, the depth of the structure is quite low. It's about 18 feet. And we're talking about 185 foot length. So the proportions are pretty slim. And this thing was wheeled out with no skirt, so you don't get the appearance of something deep. And it came out, and it came out, and it looked so skinny, and I thought, oh my God, what sort of idiot was I to go that extra eight feet? But it was okay. It worked out a treat. And it completed 30 years in service, this craft, carried millions of passengers. One comparatively minor accident where the craft went into the entrance to Dover Harbour in a southwesterly gale and the craft slewed and this area of the craft was damaged and unfortunately four people were pitched into the water and not seen again and the pilot was blamed for the accident which I thought was very harsh indeed because I thought he was a good pilot. Anyway, apart from that, carrying millions of passengers and cars safely for 30 years across the, the channel and still holds the, the record for an average speed, average speed, across the channel of 65 knots from harbour to harbour. And I'd be surprised if it's a, not a long time before somebody beats that. The trouble with it was the thirsty Proteus engines. Combined with, of course, you've got to maintain this enormous skirt. But it was a real treat. Now, when, when we did our trials, Lord Louis Mountbatten was a great fan of hovercraft. And he insisted on coming out with us on, our, on a trial where a gentleman sitting in the front row, Bob Strath, was at the controls. And he made us um, uh, do more exercises than we intended. And he insisted on being the first person to be a pay paying passenger. And he gave... that There, there is a 10p coin, which... Lord Louis gave Dick Stanton Jones so that he could be the first paying passenger. Um, it, Bob, may I give that little story of you and my wife on the on the way home on this trip? Say yes. 
<laughs> we were late getting back, and the tide had run out, and I don't know if any of you know the River Medina, we had to go past the floating bridge uh, across the River Medina to get to Falcon Yard to, to uh, put the craft ashore. And my wife was standing behind Bob, and uh, it didn't look as though there was enough room between the prow of the, of the floating bridge and the East Coast shore to get the craft past. And Bob said to my wife, feel my heart, it's pounding away like crazy. And she did, and it was. But he safely got the craft past and up the same way. Good old Bob. Now, what does all this mean so far? Well, I like this approximation of horsepower per tonne. And if you look at it, the N1 was way up there. I think it was higher than 120. Um, and we gradually reduced it. The N2 was a, was a very high cushion pressure, up to 75 pounds per square foot. Uh, the N1 was about... 15 or 16 pounds per square foot. Down here, we, we had settled on 55 pounds per square foot as a good cushion pressure for value. But you can see, we got right down to close to 40 horsepower per tonne of all that weight. And that is between 1960 and 1980. 20 years of development. I think that's enormous and as a credit to the hovercraft team. Now there's a, a picture of an Iranian, uh, an Iraqi craft. Now this one, uh, I do find what the press say about this craft very irritating. This craft is the LCAC landing craft amphibious, something or other, forgotten. Um, amphibious cushion or something. Anyway, we teamed with Bell on that. We were part of the team that did that craft for the US Navy to carry a main battle tank from an LCD uh, landing craft um, ashore and up the beach. Not only were we the design part, part of the actual contract, we designed and built this skirt for it. So we were actually a part of it. We were not subcontractors. We were actually part of the contract. And there were a hundred of those were built for the US Navy. Now, another digression just to keep you awake. Uh, when we formed British Hovercraft Corporation, the Vickers Company were already uh, operating this heavy lift equipment to get heavy transformers of hundreds of tons across understrength bridges, of which there was reckoned to be at least 1,200 of them across the country. And this cushion with these... Uh, these were strapped across the craft by wires, so there was a sort of scoop in the, in the, the uh, fabric, uh, sort of between there and there. There would be a scoop, 
and the wire from there would go across to balance the pressure across the other side with steel shoes to avoid wear on the uh, uh, on the bottom of the rubber skirt, rubber, reinforced rubber skirt. This craft was operated from something like 1964 to 1993 by the Central Electricity Generating Board. And we maintained the skirt and carried out development of it over the whole of that period. We investigated many times huge hovercraft drilling machines and hover barges, did all sorts of contracts, and for some reason or other it, none of it came to pass. We, the last one we did was for the Sizewell B reactor, where we actually had a contract to design the, the, the barge to carry the um, transformers and other heavy equipment into the Sizewell B um, area. But uh, we had just commenced the design and the people who were so for it in the Central Electricity Board decided to retire and the people who came in thought it was a bloody stupid idea and cancelled it. Uh, we, this is another one that we did for a company called Sohio where we put four SRN4 units in the corner of a big barge to carry containers. And again, change in staff, change in requirements. Now this one, I, I could have shown you a picture of the Duke of Kent sitting on a, a little air cushion under, the, under this to demonstrate that you could use an air cushion to transport sort of one tonne loads, not that she's a tonne, <laughs> of about factories. And we, we did actually use this in our own factory, not the young lady. And that shows what it looked like underneath. Um, it was really just a thing shaped like that and then rounded, as you can see here just about. When we first tested it, there was the most appalling screech you've ever heard in all your life as the air escaped underneath, and we had to reduce it and do a bit of modification to the things, but not much. And we, we made a lot of those in the 60s and 70s. Now, another uh, subject, mine countermeasures. Now, there's a young man in the audience who knows quite a bit about this. The SRN3 was decided by IHTU at the time that um, it had come to an end of a useful life. Wouldn't it be a good idea? Because they'd done a lot of testing of underwater signatures and found they were very low pressure acoustic and the rest uh, under a hovercraft. And you didn't have to keep putting the craft into a, a special rig to to decrease especially the magnetic signature. So they decided they'd see if they could blow it up. And the idea was to put a 2,000 pound mine uh, in fairly shallow water, uh, just a beam of the craft, well they, they put it 
I kept on moving it closer and closer to the craft, and I eventually got to about 11 feet from the craft. The idea being to roll the craft over and break its back. So they tethered it fore and aft. You could just see the tethers there. There's the craft. And this is what they call the dome, which is where the damage is done. The, the big bang hits the, the surface. And there she is. And there's the plume, and there she is. And there's afterwards, going home safely. <laughs> and all the main damage that was done uh, was the training edges of the fans were removed. Uh, things they put in uh, ordinary televisions with thermionic valves, all sorts of pressure measurements and all the rest. Pr proper scientific investigation uh, and concluded MCM hovercraft were a good thing. So they asked us, to the, the ministry, the government, asked us to come up with a proposal of an N4. They'd already measured the controllability of the craft in, under contract with Hoverloid and done some underwater measurements and decided N4 was a good craft, very controllable. And we produced this version with all the mining gear you can think of distributed on the main deck. And we had a competition for a new minesweeper hunter for the Royal Navy. And I was the mug who, who had to present the case for this and was told afterwards that uh, how impressed they were with, with what we were suggesting. But nevertheless, the contract went to the conventional sweeper, which didn't surprise me because it's used for training crews. The fact that you could take this ashore and not spend the night on board was actually a, a, a bad factor in the proposal because the Navy had to learn to live with one another and that was how they started it and how they learned to live as a crew. Anyway, we didn't get the contract. Uh, I, was, I was told it was close. How true that is, I don't know. So... We talked to the Navy and it was decided that we, we, the Royal Navy, Plessy, who made the sonar, and Raycliffe, who made the positioning equipment, that we do a, a big exercise in 82, 83, I think it was, um, at Portland to show how good a B87 would be in doing a, a mine hunting job. And what we did was we actually put a funnel on the B87. Great big long funnel on the bottom of which was mounted the sonar. And that's shown in the retracted position. And here it is, here it's, here it is in the deployed position. So there's that much showing. So instead of way up there, and it was down into the cushion. Now, one of these, uh, one of the things that did amuse me, we had lots of discussions with the uh, under underwater, um, I forget what they call themselves now, the, uh, at Portland uh, there was a big 
research department for underwater weapons. And one of the leading fellows said to me that uh, measuring this, the signature, acoustic signature underwater, will be hopeless on a hovercraft because bubbles will go down at least 50 feet, air bubbles. I said, what? I said, the, the pressure under the craft's only 55 pounds per square foot. That's a mere fraction of 14 pounds per square foot, uh, uh, air pressure. Oh, he said, is that all it is? And I said, yes, that's it. that is all it is. I said, they're not going to push bub air bubbles down to 50 feet. No, he said, I don't think it will. And nor did it. It went down about 18 inches. So the, the acoustic underwater signature was very low as well. Now those trials were done, they were manned by a Navy crew. Um, did you drive the craft, Bob, at all? You did, didn't you? And altogether it was a highly successful exercise by all concerned, including the Navy, who were really with it. And as a result, they gave us a contract. And the contract was to build that craft, which was a Mark 20, which was, of course, another stretched craft. <laughs> and we started the design of that in 1984. And in 1985, I got a letter from the controller of the Navy to say, they're very sorry, Ray, not Mr. Wiener, Ray, that we have to cancel this contract in, in a... Um, exercise in reducing expenditure. Now, the whole contract, including the equipment, would have been about £10 million. And if you compare that with the umpteen billions they spend, it wasn't a very big saving, was it? But that just showed me, this is not a moan, it's just an observation, that in the whole of my 46 years, with contracts from all over the world, all sorts of countries, America, Canada, Japan, Iraq, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia. Difficult customers, but they never cancelled a contract. And I can't tell you how many contracts our government cancelled of ours, which I find really rather hard. Now, this is my design team's idea of a mine countermeasures hovercraft. What I like most is this cutter that chops the, chops the chain off, the, off a floating mine. But if you have a good look at that, I, I think, you know, here's a chap doing toast and <laughs> so on and so forth. Shows that uh, you can have a sense of humour in the design department. Now then, the final craft was AP-188. Now, I just would like you to know that the proper designation of this craft was AP, which was Advanced Project, 118 was its number. But my board couldn't take that. They kept on saying 188. They couldn't get 118 into their heads. So in the end, I said to them, well, all right, we'll change the bloody number. So now there's a great big gap in the AP numbers from 118 to 188. Um, hence the number 188. Now also, 
Uh, Dick Stanton Jones was the managing director when we had this contract to build AP-188s, which was to have a diesel engined craft as, to replace N6s across the Solent and to set it uh, for other people as well. And uh, this tripartite contract did work. It was um, NRDC, Hover Travel, and BHC. And Dick Stanton Jones said, it won't work. You cannot design a, a decent hovercraft to carry a diesel engine. Now, the idea was to replace N6. Now, N6 payload was five tons. The weight of the engine on, a, on a, uh, an N6 was 500 pounds. The weight of the diesel engines to power this replacement craft was five tons diesel, so equal to the payload, so you can't do it. And my name was put on, a, on the contract that ensued to say that it wouldn't be done, and if it, if it was a failure, Ray Wheeler was to be sacked. And that was put in the safe at Yeovil. Well, I dithered as, as to whether to have this as a, a fiberglass craft. We, we'd done a lot of fiberglass work, and it could have been made of fiberglass. But I didn't like the idea of, we were hoping the craft would operate in cold, conditions, and sure enough it did. The Russians had one of these in Archangel, um, and the Canadians had one in the St. Lawrence, which we'll come to in a minute. Um, so re repairing fiberglass in a cold, wet climate is hard. It's also equally hard in a hot, humid climate. So we decided to go, I decided actually, to go aluminium extrusions for the cheapest um, construction. So these beams were a simple extruded I-beam with no stiffening. The, um, the plating on the top had um, aluminium, was aluminium alloy extrusions with built-in uh, stiffening and was to be automatically welded uh, with the help of Bill Alday of Alday, the Alday company who did help us a great deal, to be cheap, uh, slightly heavier, when I say slightly, it was quite a bit heavier than we'd been used to, but it worked a treat, and as a matter of interest, Hover Traveller building a bigger craft now, it's a, it will soon be uh, unshipped from aluminium shipbuilders in Fishbourne on the other point, taken round to Hover Traveller to be finished off, uh, another bigger craft. And they can get um, extrusion, ex extruded sheets with integral reinforcing the full width of the craft. And it comes in a sort of wobbly, great sheet that you have to be very careful to handle. So they don't even have to weld it. And this has proved to be a very good way of making hovercraft. So there is it, it is under construction. And there is the prototype, which eventually ended up with the US Navy as a training craft with special uh, 
modifications to the control equipment for training the uh, pilots of the LCAC tank landing craft. Believe it or not, we soon stretched it. What a surprise. And there is the heart of a travel machine. Notice we stupidly went that low again. You can see some of the welding bubbles in the machine. Tenacity, that's the first machine. But subsequent machines, we had a full skirt on it. And this is SAS, who had two machines. These machines were built entirely in our company, including all the welding, as instructed by Bill Alday. And uh, we had ducts around the propellers, which had this low tip speed in them. The reason that we had the ducts was not to reduce noise, because we already had the noise down to a, an acceptable level. We think it reduced it a bit, but not much. The main reason was you can get a lot of additional thrust at low speed. When you get up to, uh, uh, the same diameter outside duct as a, the free edge of a propeller, if you compare the thrust of those two, uh, it's, it's much more at zero speed. And at about 40 knots, it starts, the, the free propeller starts to gain. Now, we didn't expect this craft to do more than 50 knots. We actually have had one at 55. But, so it was marginal, but you did have the big advantage of the low speed thrust to get up slipways and, and the like. So, uh, hence, hence the ducts. I liked the um, rotating uh, ducts that were the, the Bell people put on their craft. Uh, I had uh, driven their craft, the LCAC and the Jeff B and others, on their computer. And it was so easy to put a craft into the landing ship dock uh, with just using those, those ducts. If you, if you tried to do it without those ducts, it was really hard on a, in a crosswind. But with the ducks, it was very easy. I could do it, and I'm no pilot. And uh, on the computer. <laughs> um, so I liked that, and I had those. Um, so we put this big skirt on. This craft operated from Malmo in Sweden right on to Copenhagen. It operated that way and, until they built a bridge. And that was the end of that. But... No, at least 19 of these craft have been built. This is a, a development of one AP-188 that was sold to the Canadians um, called Waban Aki, which apparently means people of the dawn. And the, that uh, is main, maintains um, buoys in the St. Lawrence River and sweeps ice four feet thick. And that is the last, my last contribution to hovercraft development. Well, many thanks for that, Ray. Uh, a very interesting account of your experience in that field. 
and a great variety of, of machines and uh, applications there. Um, who wants to say anything first? Yes. Right. The um, no. 80, 83 knots is the answer to your question. 83. That's pretty good, isn't it? Pretty fast, yeah. Yes, yes. No N4s are in service. Is that one the one you're asking? Well, as far as I know, all the AP-188s are in service, including the, the prototype, which, as I said, is training pilots for the LCAC. So all those are. Um, I don't think any sixes are, as far as I know. But the, the Saudis and the Iraqis and the Iranians may well be still operating them. They were a few years ago, but I don't know whether they are or not, of course. <laughs> yes, good. Perhaps I could uh, follow that up by asking what you think, Ray, about the future use of hovercraft. Do you, do you see uh, the, the use expanding? Do you see more machines gradually being built? Or do you feel that we're, we're not going to go much further? I, I think as of, of now, and you can never predict far ahead, can you? Because life goes up and down on nearly everything. Uh, I think we've settled down at a, a good size with this sort of AP-188 and the Griffin people are producing quite a crew craft. They're selling them to the Marines and he, even RNLI have got one. Um, and I think that's the sort of size we've leveled off at. Um, the, the big ones, I think, are waiting something better than a, a huge flexible skirt. I think it needs something much more um, wearable than than the skirt. Do you, do you regard the skirt as the the key problem, really? Oh yes. For the future, rather than things like propulsion. And no, I don't think. Well, it depends. If if you want a, a huge amphibious craft that is efficient, in other words, the best thing would be a propeller. You, you, 21 foot's the biggest ones I know, and, and having bigger propellers than that frightens mm. me to death. Um, you'd ha if you go up to about a thousand tons, you're talking about 12 propellers to get any sort of reasonable speed. That's just daft. If you go to uh, a jet engine, it's not efficient, unless you go up to 500 knots, and I don't, can't see that happening. So that's the, the real limitation of amphibious craft. Um, if you start putting a propeller in the water, you might just as well have sidewall hovercraft. Mm. Is the, are, the, are the economics of hovercraft um, very sensitive to the, the weight of the power plant? Oh, yes. Um, so if one, if one went to very big hovercraft with um, the very latest gas turbine technology, you know, where you could get very high power... Um, at a at a relatively lower weight, given you'd have to still have these big propellers, but would would that help very much or not? Uh, well, hovercraft do beat the engineer's square cube law. Mm -hmm. They are the only method of transport that I know that does. But that is to say that 
weight goes up with the cube of the size, uh, and the, the ability to carry things goes up with the square, so you're always losing as you get bigger. But with a hovercraft, it's not so, because the, the jet that forms the cushion is, uh, goes around a square, and so it's only proportional to the linear increase and not the cube increase like the weight is. So you're actually winning on producing the cushion as you get bigger. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that the, the large airliner has held the square cube law at bay. Oh, well, because they, they've advanced the design of the wings and yes, various other right. things, haven't they? I mean, it, you yes. know, I, think, I think people have but been successful uh, in, in coping you've got to with find a way. You've got to find a way of doing it. And all I'm saying is the hovercraft starts off with an mm -hmm. advantage. Any more questions or comments? Yes, a gentleman at the back. No, several diesel engines. Was that just for refuel efficiency? Yes, and economics. The Gnome engines were very expensive to maintain. Very expensive. I think the Deutzes cost about a fifth of the cost of maintaining a gnome. There is a question here. Yes. Is the AP-188 now classified as a marine craft or an air? Yeah, well, it's, it's no... No, CAA are out of it completely. Out of it completely. I was on the last panel that met something like five years ago. Can I say something now? Just for Indeed, a yes. I, when I agreed to give this lecture, I didn't realise that all of my own slides and things, which I had carefully put into the company archives, were decimated, to say the least of it. And I couldn't have given this lecture without the help of Tony Roden and Gil Hampton, uh, who helped me to put these slides together and to find old ones. And Tony Roden has, has got all the archives of the company and he's given me these flyers. If anybody's interested in getting photographs or um, videos of the old films, you can get them through this guy. And there's his, uh, if you'd like to pass them around, this is where you can, can get them. Right, thank you very much. Uh, I think just one or the most, the most two brief questions before we close down now. Anybody else? Perhaps not. Well, can I just say one more thing? Indeed, uh, yes, yes. The, I showed you the, the old executives in the end two days. I'd just like to say that in addition to all the things that I've told you about, which covers about 30 years, the beginning of it we were designing fighters, uh, which I can't was cancelled, of course. Um, we we did the, designed the rear half of the big... Belfast freighter aircraft. We did um, Black Arrow and Black Knight and Falstaff, space weapons, well, not weapons, but satellite launchers, and all successful, 100% successful. And many other um, bits of helicopters, aircraft from Canada, America, and Lord knows where, Germany. All those things were going on at the same time as this little lot that I've been telling you about in the same 30 years. 
That was done by a super group of people, and I'm proud to have been one of them. Right, thank you. And uh, I think that is a suitable point at which I should uh, draw things to a close. I think we're all indebted to you, Ray, for a, a very fascinating uh, exposition of things. Um, I've certainly learned a lot this evening, and I guess uh, several other people have. At the same time, of course, I've realized that there are a number of people in the audience who are much more familiar with this, this story than, than uh, I have been. Um, it's my great pleasure to thank you for coming here, especially on this night. Now, we do like to give our lecturers a small memento of their efforts on these occasions. And uh, on this occasion, it's not going to be the usual um, little clock that we're in the practice of giving, but this time I'm going to give Mr. Wheeler a tie. Oh, here we are, sir. Oh, wonderful. So, um, congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.